0: Good morning. I'm Jim Dorn, Cato's Vice President for Monetary Studies. It's a pleasure to have you join us today for Cato's 38th Annual Monetary Conference. When I first started planning this conference nearly a year ago, little did I know that we'd be doing it from cyberspace rather than in the Hayek Auditorium. I miss seeing everyone. We live in a surreal time when people call 911 if they run out of toilet paper. I'd like to thank our dedicated staff for making this conference possible and the George Edward Durrell Foundation for continued support. In 1996, Cato held its 14th Annual Monetary Conference, The Future of Money in the Information Age. And the proceedings of that conference, along with other articles, appeared in a book the following year. In that volume, Alan Greenspan wrote, quote, To develop new forms of payment, the private sector will need the flexibility to experiment without broad interference by the government. Let me repeat that. To develop new forms of payment, the private sector will need the flexibility to experiment without broad interference by the government. Since that time, financial innovation, in particular blockchain and the Bitcoin revolution have spawned dozens of digital currencies. The importance of these developments for the future of money, civil liberties, and monetary policy made the topic of this year's conference, Digital Currency, Risk or Promise, an easy choice. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic made it even more relevant. Our distinguished speakers today will consider central bank and private digital currencies, especially their implications for civil liberties, monetary policy, and financial inclusion. However, before getting into those issues, John Taylor, professor of economics at Stanford University, Jeb Henserling, former chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, and Phil Graham, former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, we will kick things off with a discussion of the longer implications of the Federal Reserve's response to COVID-19 including the impact on Fed independence and the case for moving towards a rules-based monetary regime. We're very pleased to have John Taylor with us today to chair the first session. In addition to being a distinguished scholar at Stanford and Hoover Institution, he's a seasoned policy advisor. He has served as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, the CBO's Panel of Economic Advisors, and as Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. He's the author of numerous articles in the leading economic journals and the creator of the well-known Taylor Rule, which has been applied by central banks and financial market analysts around the world. So John, let's get started, but uh, I should make one other announcement here that they asked me to make. Uh, When you post questions, after the next session, after John gets done uh, interviewing uh, Jeb Henseling and Phil Graham, please use the hashtag CatoMonCon using Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. So let's get started. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Jim,
1: very much. And thanks to the Cato Institution for putting this on the 38th annual conference. It's, It's terrific to be involved and it's a real honor to have this conversation with uh, Jeb Bushling and Phil Graham, uh, two giants of uh, legislation and many other thinking, many other thinking about this subject. Uh, Jeb, of course, was former chair of the House Financial Service Committee, and Phil, former chair of the Senate Banking Committee. So, I it's a real deal for me to ask them some questions rather than have it be reversed, and, it, and it's a treat to see what they have to say because it, these are such important issues. As Jim indicated at the start, uh, we're gonna think about more general monetary issues, the impact of what we're going through now on Federal Reserve policy and central bank policy generally, and touch towards the end on the digital dollar and uh issues, which would be the subject of the, of the full conference. But we thought it would be good to, to start off with uh, uh, questions, uh, more general questions that both chairs have considered. And are still considering now in the private sector. So uh, why don't we get started? And uh, I don't know if if, uh, if the two chairs, Phil and Jeb, are coming on as we speak, or or what. But uh, I I don't see them. Are they coming on anyway? Let's so let me begin if people can hear me. Um, so so first of all, there's a question about the impact of COVID-19 on policy. Of course, it's had a big impact on actual decisions made at the Fed and for that matter on our budget policy. And the question is now whether those actions are going to change policy in a more bigger direction going forward into the future. The long-term implications, the balance sheet has grown. Uh, Should the Fed have a more rules-based policy going forward? What about this new thing that's called flexible average inflation targeting. So uh, there's lots of questions in what are the long-term implications of what's been happening. We've all been thinking, we've all been writing about it, but why don't we get started with that? And maybe I could ask uh, Jeb to begin, but Phil, any time to jump in and say, what what do you think are the implications of what we've been seeing um, at the Fed, at other central banks for that matter, and to what extent this COVID nineteen is impacting policy going
2: forward. Well, John, we usually operate on seniority, but if you want me to go first, I'll go first. I was offended. <laughs>
1: like like stu- students was before my,
3: je- Jeb was my student in money and banking. I would like it to be known.
2: Well, I was about to say that if I could, John, just a few acknowledgments. Uh, number one. Uh, As an undergraduate at Texas A&M back in the 70s, I invested $25 of hard-earned money uh, to become a sustaining member of Cato, just so I could read their quarterly journals. It was one of the best investments I ever made. Uh, And in a time where government continues to grow and liberty continues to contract, I cannot think of a more important think tank than Cato. Uh, Second of all, uh, to you, John, thank you very much. I enjoyed our collaboration when I was chairman. For those who are listening to this conference, at least when I was chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, uh, there was no greater single authority who impacted our policy deliberations on monetary policy uh, than John Taylor. And I do vividly recall, if I can share with everybody here, Being called by President Trump one day, uh, and he solicited my opinion on who he should nominate as chairman of the Federal Reserve. So I was flattered the president asked my advice. I recommended Dr. Taylor. I spent five minutes going through the reason. Well, it wasn't the first time or the last time the president did not take my advice. Uh, Moving on to Senator Graham, uh, indeed. I signed up for a course called Money in Banking at Texas A&M University, low those many years ago. Uh, Phil Graham taught me economics then, he's still teaching me economics. And Phil, it is so great to be with my friend, mentor, and conservative icon, great to see you. Okay, now that I've got all those accolades out of my system, John, to attempt to answer your question. So I think that in many cases that, um, Extraordinary measures today, regrettably, can become ordinary measures tomorrow. And so um, I think because COVID probably presents the greatest single shock to our economic system since the Great Depression, a number of these measures were indeed called for. And so perhaps in the short term, many people would be building statues to j Powell and the Fed. But in our cancel culture, the question is, in the long term, will those statues be taken down? Because indeed, I think there are many problematic features of what the Fed has done on a long term basis. Number one, um, you know, when taboos are broken, they tend to stay broken. When genies are out of the bottle, they tend to stay out of the bottle. So number one, we now have this huge balance sheet. And because of the size of the balance sheet, that allows the Fed to engage in credit policy. And the composition of the balance sheet is by definition credit policy, which inherently ought to reside in fiscal policy, ought to reside uh, with the US uh, Congress. So uh, again, this is a very dangerous precedent in how Chairman Powell at the appropriate time can shrink the balance sheet and get out of the business of credit policy, I think it's going to be very, very challenging. In addition, we now know that the Fed is taking on credit risk that they have never taken on before. Uh, And so the balance sheet, um, you know, can certainly be injurious to future taxpayers. And it's one more way that the Fed's independence um, could be compromised. Next, obviously, moral hazard. Um, clearly there was a reason when, you know, the federal government for all intents and purposes put the economy into an induced coma for them to intervene. But at the same time, once you start creating kind of this, for lack of a better term, social safety net under business enterprises, you are going to engage in moral hazard. And as you establish again, for lack of a better term, kind of this social safety net, I think you exacerbate the the trend away from shareholder capitalism into stakeholder capitalism. Because, again, when government provides, again, this net, ultimately that that allows there to be greater political influence uh, upon the system. So we're seeing the Fed going from practicing monetary policy to blurring the lines between monetary and fiscal policy to, frankly, totally... Engaged, engaging in fiscal policy. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of long-term problematic challenges that left unarrested, one day we will wake up to find out our central bankers have become our central planners.
1: Okay, thank you so much. So would you
0: wanna...
3: Yeah,
0: you well, first you.
2: Of
3: all, <clears throat> I guess I should go ahead and say that uh, I recommended John Taylor to be head of the (laughs) Fed. It shows you how much influence Jeb Henseling and I have. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, uh, let's just start with a political Fed. Alan Greenspan was beaten and badgered uh, into saying that if you got a surplus and you don't want to acquire private assets that you would be better off giving the money back to the taxpayer than spending it. You said it once before a committee, after being asked the question 50 or 60 times, and the New York Times editorialized condemning it as something that would end up politicizing the Fed. The, uh, the Democrat uh, leadership denounced it. The current Fed has been on a campaign as the spokesman for greater federal spending now for some six months in a concerted effort that has no precedent in the history of this country. People talk about politicizing the Fed. The the Fed is now one of the most political entities in American government. Secondly, when uh, the financial crisis occurred, uh, the Fed asked for the power to pay interest on excess reserves. I I thought when I heard it, I wasn't in government, that it was about trying to help the banks. But what I didn't understand, and I'm not sure the Fed understood then, is that by paying interest on excess reserves, you turn them into a financial asset an income earning asset for the banks. And so, even though the Fed bought some 40% of all the government bonds sold during the financial crisis and in the three quantitative easing programs, it borrowed the money from the banks by paying them interest on excess reserves so the money supply did not expand Uh, Beyond the needs of trade and there was no inflation many economists didn't understand that then a lot of people don't understand it now but in this run-up The uh, money supply m2 has grown by 30% Now the velocity of money has collapsed People have are holding huge amounts of money in their bank account. The interest rates are almost zero so People are holding money because it's virtually free to hold. But when things return to normal, the Fed is going to have to do something or we're going to have an uptick in inflation. I think that's clear. Now, how are we ending this thing, assuming the vaccine comes this month and for the next four or five months becomes available this crisis ends, where will we be? Well, even if we didn't pass another stimulus bill, which I think is very unlikely, uh, the federal debt is now 104% of GDP, up from less than 80% last year. Um, The uh, OMB, uh, can't foresee a year in the future where the debt won't rise faster than national income, which is a frightening prospect. And the Fed has a massive balance sheet of assets it's bought, and it's borrowed the money from the commercial banks to buy those assets. So as astounding as it sounds, the commercial banking system has loaned more money to the Fed by taking interest on excess reserves than it is loaned to commercial borrowers in the economy. Now the Fed with this huge balance sheet has a lot of tools, but it's a very difficult task they've set out for themselves. This is not Alan Greenspan's Fed. And the Fed that we have today and that we are going to have for the foreseeable future is a Fed that is operating unlike any central bank in our history has ever operated. And unfortunately, every other major central bank in the world has done the same thing. So uh, I think there are a lot of risk out there and I think things will be fundamentally changed when this crisis is over. And uh, can it all be handled? Can there be a happy ending? Uh, I think there can be. Will there be? I think it would require uh, Solomon uh, as head of the Fed uh, and an iron will in Congress to get out of this thing without taking some severe bruises in my opinion. Well, thank you. Uh, it's, it's very clear, uh, both of you, about the problems
1: that we're facing. I, I, I agree. I mean, there's so many different aspects of this. Uh, the question is, well, first of all, what we're going to do about it, which I want to get into in a few minutes, but also is there a threat it could go the other way? In other words, there's questions about the Fed should be even do, doing more with this large balance sheet. It should be buying particular kinds of securities and making certain kinds of loans. And uh, your reference to the budget, I think the CBO has, has numbers 150 percent, even larger going uh, into the future. So the question is: Is this uh, a threat to the Fed's independence? Is that is that a worry? Will will legislation come back, sort of reversing what you're looking for, uh, which even gives the Fed more authority? And should be should we be guarding against that? So what are the Legislative threats that uh, could could encourage the Fed to go even further.
3: You're well, let me just respond. Um, I, I'm not worried about Fed independence. Uh, the Fed is now the most political institution in American government, uh, and I'll just give you an example. Um, the Democrats talk about uh, in the uh, in the Biden. Um, Sanders' uh, unity document talk about the Fed promoting diversity and the Fed starts talking about promoting diversity. Um, uh, So I, I think the Fed has made itself political and in the process is not independent of the political process. What I'm worried about is How are they going to set out a long-term program to wind down this balance sheet, to get out of the situation where the Fed is borrowing more money from the commercial banking system than the commercial interest of the country are borrowing? And I want to see how they get out of this situation without prices getting out of control And also a very big issue that's got to be decided in the next few weeks uh, is, or will the Fed be given the authority to continue to lend money to the private sector after the first of the year? Um, uh, I think that doing that would be a fundamental mistake and extraordinarily dangerous. The last thing on earth we want is for the Fed to be borrowing money from the commercial banks and then lending money to the private sector. It is a formula for industrial policy. It's a formula for inefficiency. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, the Secretary of the Treasury has the unilateral authority to do this. I'm sure that many people, and I, certainly I have, encouraged him not to do it. That the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no audio. Okay, I'm on now. There'll be a 20 day period between the time the lending authority expires and uh, President-elect Biden takes office. And I think it's very important that they let the new president ask for this authority and let Congress decide whether to give it or not.
2: I think it's a mistake to give it. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Jeb, you wanna? Yeah, let me you? hop in here, John. Yeah. So I, I think it is certainly foundational uh, to an American economy. The rule of law, stable money, to have stable money is why people believe there should be monetary policy independence. And again, I distinguish that from Federal Reserve independence because we know the Federal Reserve is a huge prudential regulator, lender of last resort, has other activities beyond monetary policy. And so when we talk about monetary policy independence, it begs the question, you know, independence from what? Independence from whom? And so I think what Congress originally intended with independence is independence of short-term election thinking to manipulate the money supply and get away from the goal of stable money. Now. As Phil pointed out, there are both kind of internal and external pressures to the Fed that is leading it to be less independent. I mean, during my tenure in Congress, I mean, Congress uh, found a way to go to the Fed to start financing a highway program to finance the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau now. You read the Constitution, Congress has certainly the power, the authority to do this. It may not be particularly wise to do it, uh, but they have done it. But as Phil has pointed out, all of a sudden now we have a Fed opining on climate change. We have a Fed uh, opining on income inequality. Each of these steps lead to a more politicized Fed, which means by definition, it is a less independent Fed, less independent monetary policy, which is, as I think you know, has led um, at least President-elect, apparent President-elect Biden and others in the Democratic Party Uh, to now propose another mandate for the Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve needs fewer mandates, not more. And to have a mandate essentially of kind of addressing racial inequality. Well, there are many great um, causes in the US. Perhaps the Fed should have a mandate uh, to combat human trafficking. Perhaps the Fed should have a mandate uh, to cure cancer. Now, if we're gonna have the Fed have these incredibly independent powers, uh, particularly having the Board of Governors, 14-year terms, write your own budget, it is within a very, very narrow ambit, um, which also leads us into the discussion of, you know, a rules-based policy versus discretion. The closer we get to the paradigm of rules-based, then the Fed actually is able to better shield themselves from these outside political influences that ultimately could get uh, get us away from having stable money, again, foundation foundational to our economic prosperity in America.
1: You now, these uh, remarks, I, I agree with both. One of the questions I see is, is convincing other people because, oh, why not have this institution do these things that we like? So it's like the message uh, that's coming forward is is
2: very, very important.
1: Well, John, I I think
2: Phil and I both could tell you, in Congress there is a never ending search for free money and other people's money. And unfortunately now precedents have been set uh, that the Fed is that source.
1: No, it's it's Um, a concern. Also,
3: internationally, you're hearing it at other, the ECB, etc. So, Phil. Yeah, I'm afraid. I'm not concerned that they're not going to learn a lesson. Uh, I'm concerned the lesson is going to be a painful lesson. Uh, I'm concerned that this thing is going to spin out of their control. And when it does, I think the public will react and that the changes will be made. But I think we all would like to see a return to a basic Fed that is focused on monetary stability and economic growth without having to pay a big price for it. Uh, And you know, the whole a job of government is to fix problems without the economy having to suffer before the problem obviously requires fixing. Uh, So I'm not concerned they're not going to figure out this is a problem. Uh, I'm concerned that they're going to figure it out when the economy is bludgeoned. Yeah. Uh, That's my concern. So let's talk a little bit about what could be done.
1: Uh, of course, the, the Fed is a creation of Congress in many respects. Uh, I remember giving a talk at the 28th uh, Cato Conference. I guess that's 10 years ago, if I got my math right. And uh, I wrote a paper called Legislating a Rule for Monetary Policy. To, and I think there was some appeal to that. And of course, there was a success. The Choice Act came out of the House and it passed and it was on its way, but then it didn't quite get all the way. I mean, that had some aspects to it which are along the lines that you're you're indicating. I wonder if if those efforts should continue. Is there is there a possibility uh, that uh, the the things that you're suggesting could come from legislation? Uh, you've had both ex- tremendous experience at this, but uh, any thoughts about that positive change would be very very useful. Either Phil or Jeb.
2: Well, Well, I'll start. Go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, it's axiomatic that elections have consequences. Uh, So obviously, we're going to have to wait on outcomes of elections. My fear is, again, that members of Congress are realizing to what extent the Fed can be used to fund programs that simply bypass uh, the appropriations process Uh, and allows them to frankly skip votes that they may not want to um, cast. So that's my first observation. In Congress, I think quite often you have to play a short game and a long game and many ideas take many, many years, many, many Congresses to kind of build the vote. Uh, And so um, the CHOICE Act, and, and once again, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for your help and assistance in putting that through. But I think it probably did represent the most significant positive reform to the Fed, probably in several decades, in the fact that we managed to get it out of committee and get it off the House floor. We have normalized the ideas of a more rules-based monetary policy. It's been normalized in the House. So it kind of sets a high watermark. It makes it easier to return. Uh, and I will say this with my good friend, Senator Graham on the line, unfortunately, never underestimate the ability of the Senate to do nothing. So clearly the Senate failed to take up this important piece of legislation, Uh, but there is still, I believe, a lot of desire in the House uh, to move forward. Now, having said that, uh, the Fed and frankly, no government agency likes to be told what to do. I vividly remember Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, who's a dear friend of mine, called me up and said, You'll never guess who called me. Uh, And it was Chairman Yellen saying, Please, please don't allow this bill to come to the floor. Well, little did she know (laughs) that the Speaker and I think almost identically on these issues. But I thought that was very interesting, again, that the Fed would lobby. And we were not, as you well know, Dr. Taylor, mandating that the Fed use any particular approach, but we were saying, give us what your methodology is. And in some respects, the use of the term rule uh, may have not been the best choice of words. Uh, What we wanted is greater transparency. What are the variables that you look at? What is their reaction function? It was about communication. It was about transparency. It was about measuring their approach to other well accepted methodologies like the Taylor Rule. Uh, and again, that has at least now been normalized in the House. And I think that movement would, would, in many cases, again, increase Federal Reserve independence in the realm of monetary policy. Um, and so I'm encouraged at that start, it's at a high water mark, we'll have to see where it goes from here, but clearly, clearly these efforts need to continue.
3: Yeah, let me say
2: that um, uh,
3: by the time Jeb's bill passed the house, I was out working for my grandchildren in the private sector. So I, I wasn't there, but um, let me say that When Congress established the Federal Reserve Bank, they gave it extraordinary independence because its goal was very simple, a stable money supply and stable prices. And they required that its people be chosen based on their expertise. And what has happened now is that as the Fed moves into areas like climate change, uh, 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 promoting diversity, uh, even into regulation. It is the only significant regulator that doesn't have a bipartisan commission. Um, um, Its role is changing into a role that has more and more political content. And it's showing in what the Fed is now saying, and what I would guess in the new administration they will be pressured to do. So I think at some point, there is going to have to be a wholesale restructuring of the Fed to get back to its basic goals. Or there's going to have to be a fundamental change in the Fed in who's on the board, how they're appointed, Uh, Again, I think this is all bad policy, uh, but it has come about over time, and I think it's clear for the foreseeable future the pressure is only going to be to do more of the very things that we're concerned about. Now, if if things get out of control, then the American people will send the message they want it to be fixed. And uh, hopefully it will be fixed uh, in a way that prevent um, this all from reoccurring. I think one of the things that's got to be looked at is this ability of the Fed to pay interest on reserves. Now, there's no way that could be repealed today because the money supply would explode, Um, but setting a program to phase that out, setting a formula out to to bring down the Fed's balance sheets systematically so everybody knows the rate at which it's being reduced. Um, I think that's the thing that we need to look at. And again, I think the last thing we want to allow to happen is for the Fed to become a commercial lender, which I think, quite frankly, uh, the pandemic uh, provided a stepping stone toward that. And I think uh, uh, that, for example, in the uh, Biden-Sanders Unity document, it calls for the post office to become a commercial lender to consumers And for the Fed to become a lender to business. And I think this, you know, (laughs) this is right out of central planning. Uh, And I think these things have got to be stopped. Um, And I think, again, it shows you the direction we're moving in. I mean, not only do we now have people in Congress who call themselves socialists whether they call themselves socialist or they don't call themselves socialist, their programs are socialist policies. Uh, This whole debate going on in Congress among the Democrats that they have a communication problem reminds me of when we used to have these discussions among Republicans in the Senate. They would say, oh, we got a communication problem. I'd say, boys, we don't have a communication problem. We got a reality problem. You know, the reality is we're not getting this done. It's not, there's no better way of saying failure. Uh, and uh, the, um, whatever they call themselves, their programs now are hardcore left, to the left of every governing socialist government in Europe. Um, and again, that's a sobering thought, uh, but I, it's not any kind of campaign propaganda. I'm not running for anything. Uh, it's just a reality and a scary reality. So let me ask, uh, you both uh,
1: suggested getting the balance sheet down and some of the, we're getting some questions from the audience uh, through the chat room. And what one question is, wouldn't that be damaging? In other words, restrict, reducing the size of the balance sheet people are saying, wouldn't that cause pressure in financial markets? And what about that? Because there'll be, there'll be resistance from, uh, from Wall Street if that's done uh, quickly is what the question. So what do you think about
3: that as a counter to what you're suggesting be done? Well, I don't think you could do it quickly. But I think setting out a long-term program to do it where you're saying in advance the rate at which you're going to do it, unless there's some temporary disruption in the economy, I think would be a very good policy. And look, if you, um, if you sell the assets uh, at the same time that you lower the rate of interest on excess reserves you in essence, uh, theoretically, uh, unfortunately, it's sort of like a pinball machine where you're, you gotta tilt it a little here and there, but uh, I think it can be done. But the point is, even if it can't be done without some uh, a marginal disruption, continuing this policy is inviting a huge disruption. And I think it needs to be done. Uh, you created one tremendous imbalance, unlike anything that's ever existed in the American monetary system, uh, and it's got to be fixed. So the idea that you would think, "You hell, you can do all of this, and then it's just going black magic. It's going away." I mean, it's. Uh, it's sort of like voting for these big stimulus packages as if, well, this is good, this is going to help, as if that debt's not going to be there when Jesus comes back. Um, okay, anyway. If
2: I, could what, add, yeah, yeah. if I could add to this, I mean, let's recall <laughs> there were periods when we had very good conduct of monetary policy with a fraction of the size of the balance sheet, You know, thinking through the great moderation. So number one, historically, we have this precedent. Number two, we know that pre-COVID, the Fed was on a path reducing its balance sheet. Frankly, not as quickly as I would like. Uh, That that program did tend to cease. But I agree with Phil. If it's not done, it it can't be done overnight, but on an orderly, predictable basis. And if not, Phil is 100% correct. You're going to end up with the equivalent of a commercial bank with an unlimited balance sheet engaged in credit policy directed by Congress to serve political interests, not economic interests. So I personally am far more concerned about what we do if we don't gradually decrease the size of this balance sheet, which again is taking money out of the real economy, lessening market forces and discipline, and in getting us away from, again, any type of independence within monetary policy. That's the far greater danger, not to shrink the balance sheet.
3: John, can I make one more point? the Fed keeps talking about it's going to keep interest rates down for this period of time and for that period of time. The Federal Reserve Bank has never had less control over interest rates than it has today, never. And the reason is the banks have these huge excess reserves that the Fed is paying interest on. And if market rates rose and the Fed did not raise interest that it paid on those reserves, the banks would begin to lend them out and the money supply would explode. So this idea that, oh, you can relax cause uh, interest rates are gonna be zero from now on. Uh, And uh, so all this debt doesn't matter that uh, the government's got a service. Well, the point, the problem is that because of the situation the Fed is in as the largest borrower in the country from the commercial banking system, it has less control over interest rates today than it has since the Fed started.
1: So this is is very important. Some of the questions coming in are are related to that. Is the big federal debt, does that mean we're gonna have more pressure on the Fed? Someone's asking about modern monetary theory. I don't know if we wanna get into that. I think I know your views on those, but one thing that um, we wanna be sure we touch on as we move to the next session is something on the digital currencies, which is in a way part of the, the purpose of this beautiful conference. And that re- relates to some of the same questions. So, if, if either of you would like to comment on what's happening with that and uh, do that, and then we can close up. So, Phil?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, uh, a currency is valuable as a store of value and a medium of exchange if people will take it in exchange for goods and services. And if they won't take it, does it have intrinsic value? So I think digital currencies uh, work as long as people will take them. Uh, and uh, they have no intrinsic value. Um, I think the thing that I would at least look at is, one, the federal government uh, makes a lot of money through seniorage. Uh where they basically get the benefit of creating the money that our economy uses. And over time, that amounts to a significant amount of revenue. Whether they're willing to stand by and see a private currency, uh, get that seniorage, senior Am I saying it right? seniorage? You know what? Since I was an undergraduate, I didn't use the term. Um, and secondly, I think that for tax purposes, the Fed is going to take action, and the and the Congress is going to eventually take action that take away a significant amount of the privacy that makes these currencies popular. Uh, so, I mean that that's the. Totality of my thinking about it. So, Jeff, would you like to say something about the digital
2: currencies? I'm sorry, I'm getting something on the screen. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, one, I think it's very exciting. Uh, I know that there are those in Congress, whenever they see a new technology or something that potentially could be disruptive to a government <laughs> monopoly, become very disturbed. So I think this is very worthy of exploration to have, frankly, a central bank digital currency, but certainly not on an exclusive basis. But I think there's the, the promise of a far more efficient payment system. I think there is the promise of a far more transparent um, monetary uh, policy. And I know that there are some central banks that are uh, certainly ahead of the Fed Uh, in exploring these ideas. Um, I'm with Phil that the issue of privacy is certainly going to have to be significantly explored. That's an issue. And with respect to kind of private virtual currencies, um, the energy expenditure on the mining is is another issue that certainly deserves um, some, uh, some attention. But central banks obviously would have the ability to still conduct monetary policy through, you know, adjusting short-term interest rates through this. But I think it could be revolutionary. I haven't quite concluded this is a good idea. I think it's probably a good idea, and I would certainly encourage policymakers in, in the Fed. Uh, to continue their deliberations um, on this. Again, I think it'd just be revolutionary to the efficiency of monetary policy and in payment transfers.
3: I, so I think, I forgot to mention one thing. I think if this grows, if, pub- if the public shows it really has a demand for these virtual currencies, I think there's no doubt the Fed will issue one um and um so uh, i i think that will become a factor in terms of the value of private alternatives now it may well be that they that uh, they produce a better currency than the fed it's distinctly possible but you've got all the risk i talked about earlier
1: yeah I think at the beginning, Jim mentioned how uh, emphasizing the private sector's provision of these currencies is important, not try, not to try to squeeze them out, which I think originally that was happening, but now it seems to be a more synergistic thing with maybe stimulated by other central banks. So, but it does get into all these issues uh, that we've talked on. And um, I say, I thank you so much for for your views. I wish you, sometimes I wish you were back over there. <laughs> Uh, but you have different ways to do uh, influence for the private sector and the public sector. So, so thank you so much. I think we're now uh, ready to go for the next session. Um, and uh, thanks so much to Phil and Jeb for getting us started and even thinking a little about about the digital currencies, but there's a lot of questions here that you raised and I hope some people at the Fed are listening carefully uh, to what you said. So thank you.